you, sir. Good morning. You know, it's an honor to be asked to to preach. Um, definitely not something I'm comfortable with, so bear with me. I think this thing's the thing I fear the most, but that's all right. If you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a verse here in our series in talking about the summer of love. In my mind, the summer of love is probably the worst example of love that there ever was. I was one of those who believed in such a thing. Um, I thought, boy, as long as you just love the one you're with, what problems can there be? <laughs> Lots of problems. Luckily, I met my wife quite early. Uh, I was 15, she was 16. And uh, she straightened me out really quick. <laughs> That's all right. There's a verse, verse 14. It starts off in the very beginning of it. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. Your translations might say compel or constrain. And the idea of it is, is that there's a power in love that forces an action, that forces a response. And we want to take a look at this because if love doesn't move you, there's a problem there. We live in a world in which a lot of people think the opposite of love is hate. And that's far from it. The opposite of love is indifference. And we're more and more living in a world in which indifference matters uh, way too much. If you simply text somebody, they can be your best friend forever, yes? That's a sad way to be. There's a real loss of intimacy in that. But let's open in prayer and then we'll, we'll get to this. Father, as we turn to your word, I pray, Lord, we would not be like the world that defines love in such terms as, as uh, what the summer of love was. But, love, help, Lord, help us to see love as you define it and as you has, have given it to us. We've seen the selfless love that you've given. We've heard of what John tells us about what, what a foreign, what a strange love you've given us. And yet, Lord, here we're talking about a love that controls and moves. And, Lord, I pray that we treat your word honorably and that we honestly respond to it. And with that, Lord, just let the Spirit do the teaching. Amen. This controlling love is interesting. And, and in the context of Second of Corinthians, it really has a unique place. Because Second Corinthians is a book, or a, a letter that was written by Paul that was a response to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. We don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote, but from 2 Corinthians we kind of know what the issues were. A lot of us have read 1 Corinthians, very popular book in the church, because, boy, you've got all kinds of neat things in there. You've got the gifts. You've got that great chapter 13 dealing with the love uh, chapter. You've got all kinds of neat things there. But the context of 1 Corinthians was that the church couldn't quite get together. In the body itself, you had groups that had their own leaders, groups that uh, followed their own teachers uh, to the exclusion of others. They all thought that they were better, that their teacher was the right one, that their guy was the right way. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians with the idea of trying to straighten them out with the idea that, boy, you know, the reason for spiritual gifts is not to bless you. It's to bless others. 
The idea of church is unity. The idea of, of doctrine is to center on what's essential and be able to weigh out what the world throws at you because this world will throw you all kinds of curveballs. Now, what we gleaned from this letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul was in order to get themselves straightened out, man, they got some top-notch guys. They got guys who came with letters of accommodation, teachers and, and people who knew how to really straighten out spiritual things. These guys, were, in fact, they're referred to as the super apostles when you get farther into the uh, letter of 2 Corinthians. And uh, Paul kind of uses that term uh, very sarcastically. But when these guys came in, one of the problems was the church was started by Paul. Paul was the one who laid the foundation there. Well, if you're ever going to try and take over somebody's ministry, one of the first things you've got to do is cut that guy off, right? So we know from the responses of Paul that they wrote things like, you know, the guy wrote, writes good letters, but give me a break. He's not very much to look at, and his speech is terrible, right? Now, I can relate to both those items. And in that, Paul's response is, you know, guys, how do you measure people? How do you truly measure another person? Or even better, how do you measure yourself? In that, Paul starts off this letter, and we will be in chapter 5, but flip back with me real quick to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Or, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. And in the 12th verse, Paul kind of gives his definition. Now, Pride was a big issue, and pride is a big thing today. You know, in the church, we sit there and say, no, it's, it's bad to be prideful, right? Well, then you leave here, and you go to a, a high school football game, and what, what's the first thing you do? I mean, pride's all about it, right? That's our team, you know? We've got to squash those other guys, okay? Now, the point being is there's a time and place for pride, Yes? And Paul wants to put that in perspective. So in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. He says what he's confident in, what his conscience is clear about, is the fact that what he did was not out of worldly wisdom, but out of God's truth, and he conducted himself well before them. Now, what was funny was that wasn't enough for these guys. Far from it. In fact, if, if you drop down and you go into chapter 2, chapter 2, he, he talks all about all the problems he's had. The fact that he was nearly put to death, the fact that he was beaten up, all these other kinds of things. But he gets to the end of chapter 2, and in verse 17, he says, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, and but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, he, he starts off and he says, You know, do you realize? Now, I know Christian church today, we don't have this problem, but there are people who used to peddle the gospel. Can you imagine that? What does it mean to peddle the gospel? I like the old King James. What's it say? Hucksters? Anyone have that? Hucksters of the, of the gospel, right? People would go and steal the grain off someone else's corn, you know? The idea that you're, you're taking it away. 
there are people who use the gospel for their own gain. If you don't recognize that today, oh man, we need to really get your eyes opened. What is the motivating factor? Paul says the motivating factor is that we speak as from God in, the pla- in front of God. What we want to do is deal with truth. He goes on, chapter 4, verse 2. says, but we renounce the, the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, you know, there are those who sit there and adulterate the word and uh, abuse it and use it for all kinds of things. He says, but all I want to do, I don't want an emotional response from you. Last thing I want is 20 bucks out of your pocket because you feel guilty about something, right? But boy, there are enough people who want to push that. What he says, I want to put out God's truth in a way that you understand in your conscience something that can't, you can't hide from. So you could put on a good show for me here. I could put on a good show for you here. But when I'm left on my own, when I'm in bed trying to go to sleep, it is my conscience that speaks to me. It is what I need to have stand up before me. It is the one thing that God can see all the time, yes? doesn't matter what kind of uh, face you put on. It's what's in your heart that matters. And Paul says, you know what? I don't want to get these responses out of you just on a whim. I want the response to be something that you weighed out, that you worked on, that you dealt with. And I want you to be able to not only do that in your own life, but to apply that to others. People who call themselves Christians weigh out their actions. I'm tired of hearing a church that says we don't judge. We don't judge the world. My gosh, you're going to hell in a handbasket. I know that. You know that. There's nothing to judge there. We're to judge, and he makes this clear in 1 Corinthians, we judge the church. Each one of you, if you're walking in the light, have been baptized. Well, what what was that? You stood up as a testimony to say, I'm now dead. Christ now lives through me. Hold me accountable. Yes? Okay. So let's get off the judgment thing. (laughs) Judgment happens here. And believe me, if you can't find something wrong with me, you've got a big problem. (laughs) And very few of you have ever called me, so, you know... Don't worry, I'm leaving for the whole month of September. You'll forget about that. Okay, so what we have, what we have is Paul, in a church that he planted, dearly loves these people, used them as a testimony all over Macedonia and elsewhere to talk about how great the work of God was. And what does he get from them? He gets a letter that says, are you really an apostle? Are you really able to do what you're able to do? You know, we got guys here who are just so much more polished and so much better. Well, in a nutshell, verses 11 through 15, he centers on the aspect of love with the idea of being able to weigh this out. And if you would, walk with me. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men... 
But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciousness. Now, I didn't mention, but if you uh, have one of the Pew Bibles, on page 818 is where you find these verses. And that New International Version is actually quite easily read. It, It works very well. But the first point that's made in this verse 11 is the fact that we work to persuade men. Well, is this any different from what the super apostles were doing? They were working very hard to persuade men, weren't they? They wanted to persuade them into things like, uh, pay me for my services. Uh, when you get farther up in the chapters 10 and 11, these guys were so spiritually intimidating that Paul actually says that, man, they come and strike you in the face with the idea that these guys are so holy and you are so bad that you'll take a beating from them. What? What kind of ridiculous is that? The point, you see it all the time where people, simply because someone uses the right Christian jargon or comes off with a certain Christian air about things and that, you'll put up with some of the silliest teachings. New Testament's quite clear. We are to judge the spirits. We are to hold people accountable. You know, you have two jobs sitting out there in the pew. First job, listen. Right? Apply it to your life. But the second job you have is to hold me accountable. This is the word of God. I'm standing up here delivering it to you like I know what I'm doing. You guys have no clue. All right, one of you has a clue. And it's scriptural, out of the mouth of babes, right? I mean... Your second job is to always hold whoever is teaching or preaching accountable to make sure that what they're teaching is correct. All right? Always, always, always. So do both jobs while you're out there. It's just that if you really have complaints, my wife's in the back. You can talk to her about it. No. When we look at this, the idea of persuading men, Paul has a motivating factor, but they have a motivating factor. Their motivating factor was, I want to persuade you to get a result out of you. Paul's motivating factor of love is different. He starts off and says, first thing, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, some of your translations say the terror of the Lord. Oh, what a terrible way to put it. You've all heard the fact that Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Yes. Without knowing that God is the man, where are you going to go? Jesus put it even more succinctly. He says, Why be scared of men who all they can do is kill your body? God can destroy your body and you forever through eternity. He puts it in perspective. But there's more to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not just that God is is the man. It has to do with the fact that God is holy and reverent and and needs to be held in that, that place. You really see that if you just flip over a page or so to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 6 finishes up with Paul. Yeah, I'm used to this. With Paul um, quoting out of the Old Testament repeatedly, especially towards the end of chapter 6, in order to try and push them in faith. And beginning chapter 7, he says, Therefore, having these promises, what he had just quoted out of the Old Testament, 
He says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the idea of the fear of God is the fact that, number one, we have the promises. We have security in faith. But from there, we also strive and work to perfect holiness in all that we do. Now, the thing about perfecting holiness is be very careful how you define holiness. You go defining holiness separate from what God does. Oh, who's God now? Yes? And what we want is that in knowing these laws, knowing these principles, knowing these promises, Paul says, going back to chapter 5, verse 11, knowing this, we persuade men, knowing that we are made manifest or that we are revealed to God. Everything you do, God sees, yes? And not just that, he says, we hope to do it to be made manifest in your conscience. I'm not seeking to get anything more out of you, but to consider what I say and how I live and how well those two things dovetail and achieve the same thing. You want to know what it means to be a good witness? Walk the talk. Do what the Word of God says to do. James says, be a doer of the Word, not just a hearer, yes? But we tend to put rules and regulations on where maybe they shouldn't be. It's a curious thing how that goes, but we move in love knowing that the motivating factor is God's holiness and his truth. Verse 12, he backs up and he says, oh, oh, I'm sorry, we're not commending ourselves again. He doesn't want to be like those other teachers. But he goes on and says, but we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us. Now, wait a minute. Paul, you're telling us not to be proud and boastful, yes? But here, Paul is sitting there saying, look, I don't want to be totally, you know, blowing my own horn. He did earlier there in chapter 1 saying, hey, look, I'm proud of the fact that I am striving to show God's holiness in my conscience. That, that, that's, that's key. But I'm doing it for his glory. Now, in dealing with, and I should look at my notes at some point. In dealing with this, when you talk about boasting, boasting has a place. Boasting definitely has a place. Let's look at where he plays with this. Uh, turn over to chapter 10 real quick and go to verse 12. In chapter 10, verse 12, he says, For we are not bold to, uh, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Now that... Paul's way of stumbling all over his words, but what he's saying is, look, how many people set up rules and regulations simply because they can follow them? See, in my perfect world, I would have it to where all men didn't shave, right? Nobody ever wore a tie, on and on and on, and to do any different from that meant you weren't holy. Makes perfect sense to me, all right? But you see, the point is, is if what I'm doing is defining what is perfect and what is right and what is holy by what is comfortable to me, what does that have to do with God's truth? 
Does it matter whether you grow a beard? Does it matter whether you wear a tie? Does it matter where all these things? Where is it that in showing proper reverence is a good thing? Where is it where, you know, getting yourself duded up and, and looking halfway decent for, for your mate is an important thing, right? A lot of you people sit there and say, yeah, but Gail has to look at me all the time. I know, I know, I know. I don't understand it. She still lets me in. That's okay. Keep going in chapter 10. Look at uh, verse 17. Paul quotes the Old Testament. He says, verse 17, But he who boasts is the boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he who the Lord commends. Oh. Now wait a minute. If you're only supposed to boast in the Lord, and you're not supposed to commend yourself, but only who the Lord commends, why in chapter 5... Verse 12 is he saying, you should have an occasion to boast in us. What he's saying is the church should be supporting those who are truly doing the ministry, not those who say they do and abuse it. Because he goes on and finishes that verse by saying, so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now what's wrong with appearance? We just talked about that. Shouldn't a pastor, shouldn't a preacher have good appearance? Shouldn't he come off well? In order to have a good pastor in that, you have that have to have someone who looks good, right? Same with politicians. Well, we won't get into that. But the point being is, see, too often we rate things by how they appear. Well, why? Because I like it or I don't like it. Well, point is, I'm sorry folks, it ain't all about you. What it's about is those whom the Lord is commending. See, you read Paul's letters, you think this guy was a dynamite guy. Tradition tells us he was short. He had this oozing eye disease that just made him ugly to look at. And when he actually spoke, he was not a very good orator. Far from it. Hard to listen to. And even Peter, when he writes in his letters to us, he sits and says, you know, Paul's letters, he writes stuff that's kind of hard to understand. And I go, kind of hard to understand? My gosh, i got to read it 12 times to just get, you know, the gist of it. But the point being is, he writes what is true and what God tells us we need to hear. And when it talks about those not measuring the appearance but measuring the heart, the heart is the will of what you want done. What you're striving to do. It's not the emotion of just how you feel. It's what you actively pursue to do. And what Paul was doing here was what? He wasn't looking to take advantage. He wasn't looking for the love of the gain he would get out of people. He wanted the difference in them. You go on to the next verse, verse 13. It's great. It says, for we are beside ourselves. If we are beside ourselves, we're of God. If we were of sound mind, it's for you. These guys had seen Paul in both states. He, they'd seen Paul acting like a complete idiot out of his mind. And they've seen him act quite soberly and right. Well, what is it that makes Christians so ridiculous? Sad thing is, quite often people think religious people are ridiculous because they come off with just stupid concepts of who you are. 
or what we should be. In the Northwest, it's very popular, and you could pack out of a, ch- a church rather well. If I simply tell you how divine you are, how the spark of God is in you, how, boy, if you just have the right crystal on your mantle or the right, you know, little angel hanging over your, your dashboard when you're driving and this and that, man, you have protection like there's no tomorrow. See, that's very popular. But you see, Paul puts it in perspective. When you want to talk about unbelievable things, you're talking about God. God can change a man's heart and make him a new creature. God can do things that nobody can do. And then when it comes to dealing with men, you have to be of a sound mind, a sober mind. Don't expect men to just be perfect all the time. People make mistakes. People sin. People purposely make mistakes in sin. Okay? But God doesn't leave them there. God offers a way to redeem a man and keep them in fellowship. What do people do? Anybody offends me, write them off. Never again. Right? Ain't happening. Well, I'm sorry. If God was that way, how many of you would be here? Oh, I was waiting for the kid to respond. (laughs) See, God's way of being is quite different. And when it comes to this, when people tell you that you can do amazing things, I'm sorry, ain't happening. God can do amazing, unbelievable things. The rest of us, need practical, sober accountability to each other, for each other, for the standing by and the redemption of each other. Now, these teachers wouldn't teach that way. They would teach you, oh, if if you learn my techniques, if you learn my secrets, if I tell you the secret names of God, if I do these, you can be better than everybody else. Is that what you need? No. No. Paul and God are real in dealing with human nature, human sin, human condition, but that never limits God. Now, when Paul gets to verse 14, the one that we're most interested in here, he says, for the love of God controls us. The love of God defines these things in these areas. He goes on and he says, having concluded this. Now, what's interesting here is he says, love controls us because we weighed something out. We thought something through. We put some weight into something that just changes everything. It's a whole new game. And you kind of go, okay, what is it? Okay, what is it? Let's finish the verse. That one died, therefore all died. Now what's interesting here is nobody has problems with the first part of that, what I just read. One died for all. We know the answer to that. That's Jesus Christ. His death on the cross taking all the guilt, all the pain, all the sin. Yes? What we have trouble with is therefore all died. Who is the all? Well, I alluded earlier to baptism, yes? When you accepted Christ's substitutionary death for you, You had to recognize, didn't you, that you deserve death? And in that, isn't true 
faith-saving grace applied to those who recognize that they now have to be dead in their own will? When you go through your practice, we all work for a living, we all go to school, we all interact with people however we interact. Do you do this simply to serve yourself? Because the world tells you that's what you're supposed to do. God says, no. No. If you take the death of Christ seriously, then you also have died. Your will is set aside. And what we're talking about here is the fact that when you serve another, do you do it to get something out of it? Do you take someone to lunch simply so they'll take you out? I used to do that for years. You take them to a cheap place and then you go to a nice place when they take you out, right? I mean, come on. But the point being is, weigh the options. He personalizes it. He goes on and he says in verse 15, He died, really specifying Christ for all, so that they who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Again, the idea that if the death of Christ can achieve so much, how much more in the resurrection? If you've died to your own will, your own desire, in what you serve and what you do for God, how much greater is that life when you're serving for him? So that controlling love is one that transforms. And it's not one that's just emotional. It's something weighed, judged, considered. It's how you judge your own heart. It's how you judge others. It is permeating. It was stated in Sunday school this morning that it is the love of God that all of creation screams out. And in that, as his children, it's the love of Christ then that controls us all. In closing, the sad part of this book, if you go to the last chapter, chapter 13, after making this argument over and over again, um, we could have stayed in chapter 5 and gone to verse 17 where you have that great line where it says, we are a new creature in Christ. All things are made new. That's who we are in him, yes. But when he sums up the book in verse, fifth, verse 5 of chapter 13, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? The sad thing is, is the way this is written, it almost implies a no answer. It almost implies like you don't. You don't seem to measure up. And if, if you were to notice how he says examine yourselves, this is the exact verse, the exact statement used in 1 Corinthians 11 when, when Paul says, when you have communion, when you practice the Lord's suffer, uh, Supper, examine yourselves, whether you are in the faith. Don't stop questioning yourself. Don't ever feel that you've just simply arrived because the love of Christ never stops trying to first perfect you but then also help that love reach out. With that, I leave it to your conscience, your faith, your standing before God, how you truly weigh out the love of Christ. Whether you think it's of any consequence 
or whether it's something you can simply forget and go home. And with that, we'll close. Father, I just thank you so for the word. I thank you.